in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. The following is from one of my favorite podcasts. Take a listen. This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. One of the great debates about Byzantium is where the balance of influence lies between the Roman past, the Christian present, and the Greek future. There's no better place to learn about the Roman past than right here on Ancient Rome Refocused. We are dancing over here at Ancient Rome Refocused. I decided to throw a party, and the Bacchanal has not stopped. The posting of episode 13 marks season 3 of Ancient Rome Refocused, and this would not have happened if it was not for listeners like you. I mean, the encouragement to keep the show going has been amazing, and to top it off, to date... We have downloaded over 1,500,000 podcasts over 12 episodes. On the show, we have James Irwin. He is a man that jumped from web commentator to professional screenwriter while starting on his lunch hour. If you want a detailed story on what happened, check out Wired Magazine with the story title of How One Response to a Reddit Query Became a Big Budget Flick. It's in the March edition. James logged into reddit.com and using an alias became an overnight sensation by answering the following question. Could I destroy the entire Roman Empire during the reign of Augustus if I traveled back in time with a modern U.S. Marine Infantry Battalion or new? I have invited on the show as a subject matter expert Gunny Sergeant Red Millis, retired, to talk about the Marine Corps and its capabilities and assets. Red is a very special guest for not only can he speak on the merits of the M16 and what it's like to carry one, 
he can also speak about carrying a gladius. Red has done a detailed study of the assets and capabilities of the Marines while comparing it to the Romans. Red stands in two worlds. He is steeped in the Marine Corps culture and has expanded his knowledge and vocabulary into the Roman world as well. He is a self-taught professor. And if he isn't a professor, he should be of Roman military might and capabilities. Red ran a Marine Corps museum and he operates a Roman fort in Celtic village. It is called Clash of Iron. It is a hardcore event, not for tourists, but only for those who are willing to grab their armor and spend several days marching and eating bread and doing close order drill. The Sound of Keystrokes Imagine a man by the name of James Irwin a writer by trade, and he's on his lunch hour, and he visits the site called Reddit, and he starts to type a story from the depths of his imagination. Let us interpret his keystrokes. Let's give voice to what he hears inside his head. The 35th Marine Expeditionary Unit is on the ground at Kabul, preparing to deploy to southern Afghanistan. Suddenly, it vanishes. The section of Bagram where the 35th was gathered suddenly reappears in a field outside Rome, on the west bank of the Tiber River. Without substantially prepared ground under it, the concrete begins sinking into the marshy ground and cracking. Colonel Miles Nelson orders his men to regroup near the vehicle depot. Nearly all of the MEU's vehicles are still stripped for air transport. He orders all helicopters airborne, believing the MEU is trapped in an earthquake. Nelson's men soon report a complete loss of all communications, including GPS and satellite radio. Nelson now believes something more terrible has occurred. A nuclear war and EMP which has left his unit completely isolated. Only a few men have realized that the rest of Bagram has vanished, but that will soon become apparent as the transport helos begin circling the 35th's location. Within an hour, the 2200 Marines have regrouped, stunned. They are not the only moderns transported to Rome. With them are about 150 Air Force maintenance and repair specialists. There are about 60 Afghan army soldiers, mostly the MEU's interpreters and liaisons. There are also 15 civilian contractors and one man, Frank Delacroix, who has spoken to no one but Colonel Nelson. Miraculously, no one was killed during the earthquake, but several dozen people were injured, some seriously. All fixed-wing aircraft and the attack helicopters were rendered inoperable by the shifting concrete, although the MEU did not lose a single vehicle or transport helicopter. As night falls, the MEU has established a perimeter. A few locals have been spotted, but in the chaos, no one has yet established contact. Nelson and his men, who are crippled without mapping software and GPS to fix their position, begin attempting to fix their location by observing stars. The night is cloudy. Nelson orders four helicopters back into the air at first light to travel along the river in hopes of locating a settlement. Nelson's helos launch at dawn. As they rise into the air, one crew spots a distant pillar of smoke and excitedly begins bearing down on this sign of life. Meanwhile, the mysterious appearance of the Marines has not gone unnoticed. 
Peasants have fled to the home of the land's owner, Senator Aulus Terentius Varro Morena. It is 23 BC, and Morena is about to form a Republican conspiracy against Augustus Caesar. He and other senators are deeply suspicious of the Imperator, and fear that he will swamp their ancient order with newly minted senators from his swelling armies. The appearance of a small but apparently competent armed force with a vast array of what appears to be bizarre siege machinery on his land makes him fear the worst. He dispatches several spies to monitor the visitors and orders his retainers to avoid the camp. He also sends messengers to his co-conspirators in the Senate. At noon, two sea night helicopters roar over Rome at 12,000 feet. Stunned, the pilots swoop in lower and lower. After a half hour of sightseeing coming in as low as 1,000 feet, they can no longer deny the evidence of their eyes. This is not the place or time they had occupied the day before. They leave to report. Behind them, they leave a city in chaos as terrified Romans flee the awful creatures in the sky. Sacrificial pyres fill the city with smoke, and priests of every religion shout in the streets. Imperator Augustus Caesar observes all of this, first as the Senate empties in the middle of a speech, and then on horseback as he grimly follows the creatures to the city's borders at the head of a growing body of horsemen. As they recede into the distance, Augustus whirls and begins snapping orders. The horsemen vanish, and soon the city militia is calling for order. The three cohorts of the Praetorian Guard march from their barracks. One thousand men take up station on the western edge of the city, while two thousand more restore order, cracking heads where necessary. Caesar returns to the Senate, where Murena and a few men exchange knowing glances. My fellow Romans, he says simply, those were machines, not creatures. I've seen enough campaigns to know the difference. Grizzled military veterans in his audience are smart enough not to dwell on the difference between their field experience and his. It appears, gentlemen of the Senate, that we have a war on our hands. Nelson and his command staff are stunned. Not one of his men speaks more than a dozen words in Latin. Nelson begins assembling a list of possible interpreters from his Spanish-speaking soldiers, and at the suggestion of a classically-minded major, he adds the dozen or so Marines fluent in German. He pulls over the inventories. His aviation fuel won't last longer than six months. The high-octane fuel necessary to run the Humvees may be another year after that. He knows that he could technically rig machines to run on wood gas or even coal, but that seems highly impractical. He has ammunition, he has fuel, he has food, he has medical supplies, but he doesn't have that much of any of these things. The 35th MEU was going to be dependent on a vast logistical pipeline from the first day of its deployment. He commanded one of the most powerful, terrifying forces in the world, especially in what appeared to be its new world, but it was one with a short half-life. He calls in a few of his senior commanders, and Delacra. A decision has to be made soon. The men are increasingly terrified and stunned by whispers of what the sequestered sea night crews discovered. Soon, demands for information will come. After that would come the realization that any of these men had the power and knowledge to lead a kingdom in this world. We need a mission and fast, Nelson says. Or we're going to disintegrate and spread a civil war over this empire that'll leave it in such ruins the Mongols won't bother stopping here a thousand years from now. Delacroix steps forward and says, Colonel, I may have an idea. As the conference progresses, a slight man is plucked from the swamp by two marine sentries. His insistent declarations are in no language they recognize, although Private Hector Menendez finds something eerily familiar about it. What he wants is easy enough to understand, however. He wants to be taken to their leader. 
and fifty miles to the east, the Praetorian Guard assembles at the head of a hastily assembled force of volunteers and grey-headed veterans recalled to the standard. A banner snaps in the wind, a horn blows, drums roll, and ten thousand men begin marching west. The slight man is Sixtus Murena, the son of Senator Murena. It took most of the night, but his offer has emerged. The Republican faction of the Senate is willing to offer the 35th MEU a sizable fiefdom in return for attacking the Praetorian Guard and toppling Augustus. Through his interpreters, Colonel Nelson remarks dryly that a decision like that is above his pay grade. The Praetorian Guard covered five miles on day three and another twelve on day four, a third of the distance to the 35th MEU's camp. Augustus himself is in the camp. He is also reviewing a steady stream of messages. Emissaries have been dispatched to every governor in the empire to be on alert, but only two legions have been recalled. Augustus is firm in rejecting rumors of supernatural powers, and his calm, measured response is helping to soothe terrified Romans. The Senate has authorized the formation of two new legions from veterans of the civil wars. The question of their command is a prickly one. Augustus has no desire to inflame the Senate by promoting one of his favorites, but with the Praetorians on the march, he cannot leave a Republican in charge of the only military force in Rome itself. He assigns General Marcus Agrippa to head the new Legio Prima Italica, and leaves the question of the Second Legion's commander open for the moment, tasking Agrippa only with overseeing its formation. Neither will be ready for deployment within a month. Two Marines vanish from Camp Tiber, one of several unofficial names along with Camp America, Camp Future, and Wonderland. Nelson is too busy to bother with an official one yet, as does one Afghan national. It is assumed they have struck out in search of adventure, or even in hopes of reaching their homes. Colonel Nelson is forced to order sentries to shoot to kill anyone entering or leaving the camp. First Contact Sixtus Murena remains in U.S. custody despite his increasingly agitated demands to return. Senator Murena begins to regret his rash decision to approach the invaders. What if their camp is overrun and Sixtus is discovered there? What if Augustus' spies have already noted his absence? He and his fellow conspirators debate and debate, but decide to do nothing but wait. They are comfortable men and tempered by years of legislative experience to talk and observe. They are not men to seize the nettle. The fact that Augustus has an informer among their ranks is almost irrelevant. The Praetorians close another fifteen miles. The pace is exhausting for the hastily scraped up auxiliaries, but marching on fine roads near Rome, even under one hundred pound packs, is child's play for a Praetorian, a man who has never known air conditioning, never sat in a cushioned chair, never greeted tropical storms or arctic gales with anything but stoic resignation because he has never had a choice. Unlike the men of the 35th, whose tempers are fraying under the stress of their predicament and their utter isolation. At four in the afternoon, with humid temperatures roasting American and Roman alike, a unit of 50 Roman cavalry in glittering metal armor appear on the horizon. Sergeant Alvin McCandless shouts to his men who take up position behind a line of sandbags. M16A falls are trained on the Romans and a squad automatic weapon is locked and loaded. 50 caliber bullets. Within five seconds, enough firepower to annihilate a legion is concentrated on Fulvius Bassus and his men. Bassus approaches cautiously, but holds his head high and keeps his horse trotting at a confident pace. The invaders shout something, but he pays them no heed. They're too far away for a parley, and he's not even close to bowshot range. He will uphold the honor and dignity of Rome, and he will come in close enough to talk. 
There is a sudden flash of light. Something erupts in a cloud of dust in front of his horse. A split second later, loud reports echo through the air. Now the invaders are shouting again, their voices now unbelievably loud with a strange hissing behind them that distorts the sounds into something inhuman. By reflex, Bassus and his men draw their swords. They should now return and report. But Bassus is years removed from service, and he is still getting reacquainted with the art of subordinating himself to commands. It is no longer easy for him to ignore the squirt of fear running through him, making his heart pound and his palms sweat. He repeats his orders. They will advance and parley. The Romans move forward. They are still far from bowshot, and his reflexes are honed by years of civil war against his fellow Romans. He expects the call to parley, not a fight. He has a hundred paces to go. Sergeant McCandless watches the Romans advance, ignoring his warning shots and calls to halt. Their swords are drawn. He does not know the range of a Roman bow. He only knows that they are closing. He doesn't know what kind of weapons they have. He doesn't know how to talk to them. His nerves are frayed after four days without sleep. Nightmares about his family ripping him out of the few minutes he can eke out before taking another go pill. Stop! He roars. Fucking halt! Now! Five seconds. Bullets arc forward. Marine marksmanship is the finest this world has ever seen, and Bassus and his men, trotting forward six abreast, make a fine target. They all drop. Horses and men shriek. The narration was provided by Roy Kelly. Roy Kelly can be contacted on Facebook.com. Just type in Facebook.com slash Kelly, spell out the word comma, C-O-M-M-A, and end it with Roy, R-O-Y. That's his Facebook address. Roy is a voice actor. It's amazing the number of voices he can perform and is available for commercials, documentaries, and animated films, but I make a strong suggestion if you want to make an audiobook, you contact Roy Kelly on Facebook.com. We are fortunate that I was able to get James Irwin on the line. James! Can you hear me? Tell us what happened. Well, I was on a uh, lunch break at work, and uh, I I wrote this story when I saw a uh, hypothetical question on Reddit. Could a battalion of Marines, um, could an MEU destroy the entire... Roman Empire, and uh, so I thought, well, it's kind of a fun idea, so I just started exploring it and thought about it, and I said, well, I'll write it up, and wrote it up, uh, started posting it online, and by the end of the day, uh, about a half million people had seen it, so um, like within the day, I had been contacted by uh, a management company in Los Angeles, and started talking to producers. And within a couple of weeks, I had a had a deal to write a screenplay based on the story. Yes. Are you a uh, are you a writer, or is this just something you started to do online? Well, I I write soccer manuals for a living, and I actually have also I've contributed to uh, a number of reference books about history. Uh, my second uh, full length work, it's an encyclopedia of U.S. military actions that comes out in April. So I had had a lot of experience writing nonfiction, and you know I've had some experience in history, but uh, nothing, nothing fiction, and certainly for screenplays. 
in a sense, the topic was chosen for me. But I've always been, you know, fascinated by the uh, Roman Empire, you know, the impact that it's had on the history and the culture of so many nations that followed it. Um, you know, it's 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 a topic that continually repays the study that you put into it. Because it just, there's just so much in our world that <clears throat> flows naturally out of Roman history. Well, you must have been totally surprised by the response that you got from people. Absolutely. I mean, you know, my, my hope was that, well, maybe, you know, a hundred nerds will see this and enjoy it over the lunch hour. And I love, you know, I thought I was playing to a much smaller room, if you will. But um, to have the story get the response that it got on Reddit, and then to see that fly so quickly out into the rest of the world was, uh, it, it was well, it was certainly unexpected, and it was just so exciting. It was really, really, uh, it was humbling to see just how how much of an impact that it had so quickly. Uh, you were doing it on uh, Reddit, and uh, isn't that like uh, writing a novel with uh, uh, a thousand and one critics uh, sitting in the room with you as you type? Yes. Um, it, it's, it's, it's like trying to write an episode of ER and, you know, like actual surgeons are walking into the room and offering suggestions. Or, you know, in this case, I mean, like I can talk a lot about the Roman Empire and no one's going to get terribly offended if I get something wrong. I mean, they'll say, well, that's inaccurate, but, you know, if you're writing about the Marines, you get something wrong. There are plenty of Marines who will feel very strongly about the mistakes you've made. And so I felt, um, you know, I had a, a from the very beginning, once I realized, you know, this is not just, you know, a quick writing exercise that a few people might appreciate, but it's something very big, I felt I had a lot of uh, responsibility to uh, to the Marines who have served our nation. Gunny Sergeant Retired, Red Millis. Yeah, I uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps on November 10th, 1976. Uh, my father was a retired Marine and actually administered the enlistment oath on the 201st birthday and the 200th birthday of the, the Marine Corps. I ended up serving 22 years in boots. About 11 of them were deployed out of CONUS, the continental United States, into the Western Pacific. Um, retired in 99. I had a, a pretty varied career. Uh, started as a, an aircraft engine mechanic. I had a uh, tour with the Marine Barracks in Subic Bay in the Philippines with B Company. Two tours on a commanding general staff. Uh, one year with under the auspices of foreign military sales with the first Italian Navy fixed-wing squadron since World War II. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time in the Marine Corps. You retired with the with the rank of gunny sergeant? Yes, that's the, the seventh enlisted grade in the Marine Corps, seven of nine. Did you come into contact with James Irwin? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. Uh, several years ago, I was doing some research under the auspices of the, the Marine Corps Legacy Museum in regards to Roman Marines, and I had a buddy that sat there and said, hey, I know you're interested in Rome, and here's an, an individual that has an interesting premise. And I contacted James via email, and subsequently he and I have, have uh, 
via email talked several times. What are the assets of a Marine Expeditionary Unit? A Marine Corps Expeditionary Unit is comprised of three major components. The first one is called a GCE, Ground Combat Element. This is the actual warfighters. The second component is the ACE, the Air Combat Element, and is comprised of the aviation assets. And then the, the following one is the service and support. It used to be called Fleet Service and Support Group, who provides the beans, bandages, bullets, MPs, engineers, etc., etc., etc. The ground combat element is comprised of eh, plus or minus 1,178 Marines. And this consists of the headquarters, headquarters support company, three rifle companies of infantry, a weapons platoon which has the, uh, the crew served weapons such as the mortars, the heavy machine guns, etc., etc., a uh, reconnaissance platoon, a sniper's platoon, a heavy equipment engineering platoon, a six-tube artillery battery, a four-tank tank platoon, um, six-vehicle light-armored infantry vehicles, 13 amphibious tractors, one boat platoon, and a platoon of remote piloted vehicles. To break those rifle platoons down, that's three squads, which would have 21 M16s or M4s, nine M27 infantry assault rifles, nine M203 or M32 long gun combinations. You have a weapons platoon, which has the mortar squad, a machine gun squad, an anti-armor squad, three 60-millimeter mortars, and six M40G machine guns. In your weapons company is a mortars platoon, the machine gun platoon, the anti-armor platoon, and... This isn't secured information, so interestingly enough, when you're looking at your crew-served weapons, you're looking at eight 81-millimeter mortars, six Mark II 50-caliber machine guns, six Mark 19 40-millimeter machine guns, six M240 Golf light machine guns, three co-systems, which are anti-tank, and three javelin systems. On the aviation side... You have a, uh, a composite squadron, which is comprised of uh, eight Harriers, or six Harriers, rather, um, eight CH-53 heavy lift helicopters, V-22 Ospreys, the AH-1Z attack Cobra helicopters, and the UH-1X Huey helicopters. That's eight and six, respectively. And then they have their service and support, like crash fire rescue, maintenance, wing engineers, Etc. 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 On your ground combat service and support, you have your your military platoon or military police platoon, bridge platoon, explosive ordnance disposal, communications, motor transport, engineer support, supply platoon, maintenance platoon, and your medical platoon with one doctor and approximately twenty Navy corpsmen, which are our medics and chaplains. So. <clears throat> Basically, you're looking at approximately on the Marine Corps side about 2,000 Marines for a Marine Corps Expeditionary Unit. So you're talking a whole lot of destructive power then? An immense amount of destructive power. Remember that today the United States Marine Corps is America's primary forced entry asset, and over 93% of the world is accessible to the, the Marines. 
be either helicopter-borne or amphibious assaults. James Irwin, screenwriter, on the importance of studying the Romans. The impact that they have had on everything that's followed, you know, makes them worth studying. But it's also, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a topic that has really started to blossom in the last century or so. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, 37. But even in those 37 years, a lot of things have come to light. A lot of things have been pieced together. We know more about, you know, the daily life of a Roman than we did even, say, 30 or 40 years ago. You know, with chemical analysis of, you know, their diet and their, uh, you know, we, we know more about how they really live, not just how they portray themselves. And watching all that come to light, but still knowing that so much of that history is gone and is necessarily interpretation and guesswork, that's fascinating. And they were also to a people who are recognizably like us in so many ways. You can still laugh at the jokes in a Roman play. You can still understand, you know, why someone would follow a general who gave the speech that we're reading or why someone fought a fight. That's, you know, it's, it's you know, like, they, they, they had understandable motives. They were people like us. But they were also alien in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, like, for, yeah, like, just the value of a human life today versus the value of a human life in the Roman Empire. Um, people who were, you know, you know, they were used in their daily life to dealing with slaves or being slaves. They entertain themselves with the death of their fellow people. They're things that we find, you know, shocking and abhorrent, but they had, you know, to them it was just part of life. And to see that, you know, like that level of violence and still be a recognizable person and a decent person and an honorable person in so many respects, it's fascinating to think about the parallels as well as the contrasts just, you know, in, you know, that's just one aspect of it. Well, that conquistadors uh, destroyed an entire Inca civilization uh, with just oh, yeah. with a slight variation in technology, and I believe it was things like ho- uh, horses, uh, steel blades, uh, gunpowder, and uh, a whole lot of of ruthlessness. Uh, but uh, and and I think I know the inventory that the Marines have, but what? What extra facet do the Marines have to take down an entire empire? Well, um, if you look at the, the Marines versus the Romans, I mean, the first most important thing is that, you know, the Marines understand the Romans. Their officers have studied Roman campaigns and Roman equipment, but 90% of what a Marine brings onto a battlefield would completely mystify a Roman. You know, Romans have a lot of experience in stand-up fights, but they were, you know, like, if you're going to bring a guerrilla force to battle, then you have to understand, you know, why, you know, where they're coming from. The Romans wouldn't be able to burn out the marine supply bases or threaten their women and children or do any of the other things that got, you know, the Germans or the Britons or the Dacians, or anybody else that they conquered, onto an actual battlefield where a legion could dismantle them. They'd have a lot harder time flushing out the Marines 
and you know actually shifting the battlefield to their to their favor that is you know that level of understanding and that level of uh you know just the fact that they'd be fighting a group of men who are unmoored from any support system which is you know how the romans fought a lot of these wars they would threaten the women and children and they would you know back up the barbarians until they had no choice but to fight and then once you're up against the legion one-on-one that's that's a really hard fight to win. They wouldn't be able to do that against the, the Marines. And then well, when you've got the firepower, you know, a, a legionary versus a Marine, that obviously is, uh, well, that's a very hard fight to win, too. Well, that brings up another interesting point, uh, logistics. I mean, logistics, uh, from what I know about it, has always been the key to winning wars. Mm-hmm. So so the Marines do go back, but uh, they only have a limited amount of, of uh, bullets, to supply sure. to supply their efforts. So, in composing your story and putting your story together, uh, are you on a, uh, a a time limitation of which of which in which they can do what they want, uh, or uh, do, or is there something, or do the Marines themselves have to change in order to complete the mission, so to speak? Well, it's, there's a lot in there I can't discuss in depth without giving too much away. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely that's definitely something that you know, like I kept in mind from almost from the beginning of writing, was uh, you know, I, I believe one of the first things I, I wrote about in the uh, actual story, I said, you know, the commander of the Marines was musing to himself that he probably controlled the most, you know, his his uh, unit was probably the most dangerous thing on the planet. Yeah, but it was a it was a bomb with a short half life. So, I mean, this is, you know, like, if he was going to take his men against an empire or the world, then that was a fight he had to win quickly. Gunny Sergeant Retired, Red Millis. Uh, The Marine Corps Expeditionary Units are structured and supplied for 90 days of, of combat operations. That's presupposing that all of the assets belonging to the Mew were landed or transited time. Um, they can do up to 90 days of low-intensity combat unsupported. They can do 60 days of medium-intensity combat or 30 days of, lo- of high-intensity combat. And <clears throat> those figures, though, may be somewhat misleading because organically, the Mew generally has about 14 days of rations, ammunition, petroleum oil lubricants, petroleum oil lubricants on hand for combat operations. So it could be anywhere between 14 and 90 days, depending on how much of the deck load of the, the Marine Corps actually transitioned. Do you think that's enough time for the Marine Corps to take on the Roman Empire? Not at all. Well, <clears throat> we have to take a look at, at history. Um, there's plenty of time and assets there for Rome to, or for the Marine Corps, rather, to win several battles. But winning battles is not winning the war. Let's go back in history and, for example, take a look at, at 216 B.C. at the Battle of Cannae. You know, Rome lost depending on the source that you read, somewhere between 48,000 and 70,000 KIA with about 10,000 captured to the Carthaginians under Hannibal. 
to put it in a different perspective, I've actually seen it posited that the Roman losses were equal to about 6 million pounds of dead Roman meat left on the battlefield or over 100 Romans killed a minute for the duration of the battle. Even given these catastrophic losses, though, the, the Romans came back and continued to fight. Historically, the Romans were able to accept the kinds of losses in combat that America would just absolutely positively refuse to accept and continued to come back until they'd actually won. So even given the weapon systems and everything else, I mean, the uh, a gun line of Marine Corps 50 calibers, all right, let's just sit down and, and say that you've got those six 50 caliber machine guns that are lined up on the uh, axis of advance of the Roman, or the, the Roman legions, plus you have your mortars and your artillery, so... We start dropping all of this ordnance down on top of the Romans, and it would be absolutely horrendous. I mean, uh, there was no armor, nothing that could withstand these types of, of assaults. However, what the Romans would do if they remained true to what history said they did was they would absorb the losses, go back, lick their wounds, recruit and arm another army, and come back for the Marines again. Um, eventually the logistical or the supply trail would end up becoming exhausted and finally the, the Romans would be able to, to overwhelm the Marines. Arthur C. Clarke was a brilliant futurist and writer, but he is probably most widely known for the third of his famous three laws, which was any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I asked James Irwin to explain why Augustus didn't see helicopters as magic. Augustus, for all his public piety, I never really bought him as a deeply conservative, pious man. Um, his move, his uh, actions were all very practical, and he seemed to be, you know, his goals were all very practical. And, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, obviously it's, it's impossible to know from this remove what his actual motivations were, his actual beliefs were. But, uh, I mean, he promoted Roman religion, but it was always in the context of Roman tradition and encouraging, uh, encouraging those parts of Roman tradition that made it, you know, that made Rome strong and that he thought would give a lasting basis to the, the order that he was building. So I, th I thought if there was any one person who would be able to see through, you know, whatever panic the Marines' arrival or any sort of hocus-pocus that they would throw up, it would be Augustus. And even if, you know, he had a twinge of fear or bewilderment, he would also be the person of that period that I thought would be most likely to shrug it off and put on a brave public face. I think most people, when faced with time travel, would probably be subject to a very unique form of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Is this something you considered for your script? I, oh, I, I definitely think so. I mean, like, at the beginning um, of this, you know, the story as it's written, there's a lot of that. I mean, at the beginning, everyone is... Uh, 
everyone is busy and everyone is just dealing with the emergencies at the moment. But after a couple of days, when it really sinks in, that you know they are completely alone. I mean, when a soldier or a marine goes to war today, I mean they go to Afghanistan, they go to Iraq, but um, you know they, there's a base that they communicate with, and their families are still there. And in this situation, you know they are—they're not just behind enemy lines; they are—they are completely cut off, and they don't know if their families are safe. They don't know if their families will ever exist. That is a form of stress that uh, I don't think anyone can imagine without going through it. But, yeah, that's an impossible situation, and it would create impossible stresses. And I think under a situation like that, people would, you know, the only thing you can do is what most people would do under a common situation when you have nothing to cling to but you know, the guy next to you. And so, I mean, yeah, that, 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 will be, that will be explored in depth. Okay, Red, you're a gunny sergeant again, and you're back in uniform, and you find yourself in this impossible situation. What do you tell your men? You know, that's a, a difficult question. It's one that I've put quite a bit of thought into. I think that one of the first things that, that everybody that would be attached to the MU would be concerned with is, can we get home? If it's decided that we can't, then my next decision is, how do I sit down and ensure that, that my men remain a cohesive, operationally cohesive unit, their health is maintained, uh, and the ability to function as a Marine Corps unit is maintained. And I think at this point what I would have to do is I would have to, to fall back on one of the hallmarks of the, the United States Marines is that uh, we've never lost a major battle, and we are not going to lose this one. So, Marines, this may be our Iwo Jima. This may be our Fallujah. It may be our way. It may be our chosen reservoir. But those Marines didn't quit. And we're not either. And I think that would be the tack that I would uh, I would take. I seem to remember reading something a while back, and I hope I got this wrong, but I picked up a magazine and they said that the United States Army has decided to discontinue bayonet training. You know, the, the Marine Corps is unique in that we're the only branch of the armed forces that still trains for bayonet combat. And within the last 20 years, the Marine Corps has developed its own specific methodology of hand-to-hand combat. Um, But even given that, the Romans were very adept at close-order combat. I mean, the the Tripolakes combat formations that the Romans used where they could rotate troops forward, uh, the weapons that they're using, the armor, there's absolutely no way that in, in close combat without ammunition that the Marine Corps would be successful in uh, in repelling a, a Roman assault. James Irwin, screenwriter. With with uh, sword, you know, with sword fighting, when, when it's a man and a blade, then it's a very different uh, psychological kind of fight than two men with guns. And you know, the Romans won a lot of battles 
because they were, you know, like they trained their men not just, you know, as far as marching or how to carry a carry a shield. I mean, they trained their men. They drilled them for hours on, you know, like if someone comes at you, lift the short, lift the sword, thrust up, and it was, you know, with the with the blade into the gut, and then put the sword back, put the shield back up. It was sort of, you know, almost, you know, Skinner style reflects you know, like getting these combat reflexes down. Not just a matter of, um, you know, as, as far as, as marksmanship, but as far as drilling this until it was not a conscious action anymore, which is something that we only really rediscovered in the modern world after World War II, you know, con- conditioning. The Romans won battle after battle because they had men who were conditioned to, you know, kill without having to stop and consider it or psych themselves up. Um, they didn't have to run across a field screaming like a barbarian did, and they didn't have to think deeply about the consequences of their actions. They just, you know, they snapped their muscle upward and someone died. In most battles that the Romans were involved in, it wasn't 10,000 dead on one side and 12,000 on the other. It was 100 and 1,000 or 110,000. Most people died when they snapped and started running and somebody got you in the back. Um, <clears throat> and the Romans... Now, until later in their history, were generally able to be the more intimidating force. Um, and the bayonet, I don't think it's so much about having the skill to uh, walk up to somebody and stab them artistically. It's about conditioning that sort of aggressiveness and being able to reconcile in your head like this reflexive action with you know the fact that you're killing someone. And the Marines really, uh, they really prize that aggressive reflex. They want, you know, they, they prize that warrior tradition. And so I, I, I could never see the Marines, like, abandoning knife training or, uh, you know, the use of the bayonet. I mean, they're still, like, they just introduced a new combat knife. And oh, I, I would never be able to see that either. Um, um, yeah, yeah. That, it, it's true. And you just made me think of something, uh, uh, I understand that uh, there was a time in history that uh, the Roman. You talk about reflex. The army, the Romans sent a soldier to fetch Archimedes, and uh, he was pondering some probably mathematical formulae, and uh, he told the Roman soldier to to wait and wait a moment, and the soldier just automatically killed him. And 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 I I remember I was reading that and I was thinking to myself, why would he do that? And Speaking to you, it makes me wonder if it was just a natural reflex of the soldier. And yeah, and it was also too. I mean, you have to remember this was after a long siege. I mean, that guy had probably been. I mean, like first off, he had you know been rowed out on a boat. He'd been seasick for months as the sailors tried to get the ships close enough to Syracuse, while you know Archimedes is throwing all these wonder weapons at them. His you know like his catapults and, and death rays and whatever else he had invented. And so, you know, like this guy spent months seasick, you know, and on these, you know, triremes, you know, if somebody came by with a light gust, you were going over and you were going to sink to the bottom with wearing 100 pounds of armor. So this guy was terrified for months. Finally he gets ashore. The Syracusans kept fighting. They had to sit there and spend months digging trenches, trying to get around the Syracusan walls. Finally they get in. There's another big fight. This guy... Probably, you know, he was probably a shell-shocked, you know, mess 
by the time he even touched ground. And so at the very end of it, so here's this egghead, you know, couldn't, you know, who never fought honorably a day in his life, and he's drawing, you know, he's doodling in the ground, and every time he doodles, and this Roman is thinking about all the men who died because of this, you know, this pasty nerd who doesn't even fight like a man. <laughs> I mean, I, I would probably be, not, I would not be very patient with Archimedes in that guy's shoes myself. Well, I, I just said, read something in, in a history book that kind of supports supports your uh, point because they talked about there was points there when the Romans would sail up that they saw any kind of structure or piece of wood or rope coming out of the wall, they they immediately thought that Archimedes was up to something and they, they refused to attack because they just mm-hmm. had this feeling that something was going to come out of the wall and strike them down. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I could see that he would be pissed off. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, if this guy's, you know, you don't, you don't know it too. If this guy's doodling on the ground. For all this guy knew, he was creating a magic spell that was going to make a demon arrive out of the beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you? I'm just asking, but are you mm-hmm. going to in your script? Are you including any views from the infantryman's point of view? There, yeah, there will be. Um, I mean, it, it is not going to be a uh, grand distance, you know. Two chess masters battling it out with an armies of pawns. It is going to reflect. It is going to, you know, be very much about the human spirit and exploring the differences as well as similarities between the modern soul and the Roman soul. Um, so I mean, there is going to be a lot of uh, a lot of close attention to the ordinary man from from both eras. I am really, really grateful for all the attention that the project has gotten, and it. You know, um, if it had not been for the visible support of a lot of people, this would have been, you know, just a guy posting something else on the internet. I got I to tell you, without without all these people coming forward and saying they were interested, nothing of, would have come of this. And so, I uh, I really appreciate. I'm sure there are people who saw the original posting who are going to be hearing this, and I appreciate everything that they did. You know, even if it was just you know clicking one button to vote it up, then that was part of what created all of this. And I hope that the project they create is going to uh, be something they want to see. That's definitely what I'm working toward. Okay. Well, listen, uh, James, I want to thank you for agreeing to interview with us. And we at Ancient Rome Refocus, we wish you every success. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. That was James Irwin. In the past five months or so, some changes have taken place. The movie company that James signed a deal with decided to bring in a different script writer. Somebody worked on a uh, movie called Apollo 18. I think Hollywood is making a mistake. Hollywood has a habit of changing the creative work of artists to suit their needs. I think James has written an extraordinary piece of fiction, if you think so. I encourage you to write him an email and tell him so. He needs to write the ebook, the ebook version of Rome Sweet Rome. A writer, a true writer, writes for himself. And you're not going to worry about movie companies or other people's opinions. You can't keep a good man down, and James Irwin is certainly a good man and a great writer. I ran across something on the internet. Hi, I'm James Irwin. I wanted to take a couple minutes to tell you a couple of stories. Two years ago, uh, I got a chance to be famous for a day when I wrote Rome Sweet Rome. 
and this was the story of a group of U.S. Marines traveling back in time to the Roman Empire, and it got a lot of attention. So much so, in fact, that within three days I had a manager in Hollywood, and a month after I put this eight-page story up on Reddit, uh, I had a screenplay deal with Warner Brothers. It was an amazing opportunity, but opportunities often come with prices, and for me the opportunity meant changing a lot of the story moving forward. Now, I have a new story called Acadia, which takes place a hundred years in the future. It's a story with spaceships and intelligent computers and robots, and I think it's really cool. What I would like to do this time is put the story out there the way that I envision it, the way that I want to write it, the way I think the story should be presented. And that's why I'm doing this Kickstarter campaign. I believe very strongly in this story. I believe in what I'm writing, and I hope that you will too. If you're interested in supporting this campaign, please check out the rewards on offer. Um, feel free to read down below because the team I'm working with has put together, I think, a really exciting campaign. Um, if you want to read part of Acadia online, you can do that too. There's a link for that as well. I hope that uh, you enjoy it and that you will be as excited as I am to see the rest of the story. So thanks very much for your time. I think James Irwin is an extraordinary talent and I think we'll see much of him in the future. And please, James, write that ebook. I'll be lining up to purchase it myself. It takes imagination to be a creative artist and I think James Irwin ranks high in this world. Now let's go back to Gunny Sergeant, retired Red Millis. We still have him on the line. What what is it like marching in Roman armor compared to the uh, weight that a Marine has to carry around? You know, uniquely, Rob, the combat load for a Roman legionary in his his bronze or or iron armor and his combat load is remarkably close to that of a, a United States Marine today. Um, somewhere between 93 and, and 100 pounds. Notwithstanding the fact that our armor is Kevlar, um, super lightweight, uh, I don't want to say artificial because it's real, but modern material construction. Um, but when you take a look at, at the loculus that was carried on the furca, uh, either the male or the lorica segmentata, the helmet, the delabra, the bucket, everything else that they carried, uh, the combat load is, is remarkably similar. But I will say that, that one of the things that actually sent chills up and down my back the first time that I was able to do this was we were drilling just shy of a Roman century. And as these guys marched around, the the sporan that hangs off the, the Roman legionary belt um, rattles and, and jingles and shakes. And I couldn't help but thinking, here I was, a, a poor Gaul somewhere, and all of a sudden I hear 10,000 legionary boots clanking and, and you know jingling as they come towards my village or my lines. And it literally sent a, a chill up my back. The uh, the sounds of 
even that small a component of, of the armies of Rome advancing. You know, Rada, I just don't think that that kind of realization would come from a history book. No, no. Like I said, it, it was uh, it was an epiphany for me, and I've studied Rome, you know, for years and years and years and years, and I don't profess to know everything. But uh, the Clash of Iron event actually allows, especially since it's not done in front of the public, actually allows individuals to uh, to experience exactly those types of, of moments where you can get a handle at the gut level what it was like to be a Roman legionary, to be on the, the walls of the Roman fort, which is actually there, a, a cohort-sized Roman fort, um, to bribe a centurion so that you can go out the gate to purchase something in the weakest at the cupana or the taverna to augment your rations, you know, and come back and have something other than, than lentils and a rough ground gruel to eat. Um, surprisingly, the training is not much different. I mean, when I was a, a young Marine recruit, at Paris Island, the, the word that I heard most frequently from the drill instructors was, no, get back. And I'm sure that that was exactly the way that the Roman recruits were trained. No, get back, do it again. So there were similarities, but uh, the Clash of Iron gives folks an opportunity to, uh, more so than a static display in front of the public or an SCA, Society for a Creative Anachronism event, gives those with a, uh, a more than passing interest in the, the history of Rome an opportunity to experience what it may have been like to actually be a legionary. You know, how cold that barracks is at the end of March, even with eight of you guys in, in rope bunks, you know. If someone wants to uh, take part in this, uh, who would they contact? Um, the easiest way to do it is to the, go to the, the Yahoo website and look at the Clash of Iron. And we have a, a general Yahoo group, Clash of Iron, and then we have a Yahoo group, Clash of Iron Roman and Clash of Iron Celtic. Oh. And depending on which... Iron Age culture they're most interested in, they can sit down and uh, go into that one and then possibly start taking a look at, at attending the events. And if they don't have the equipment, um, that's not a stopper in, by any stretch of the imagination. There's certainly enough equipment in folks that attend regularly that... Uh, Stuff like armor and helmets and swords can be uh, can be loaned. I would caution folks. I'm not trying to scare anybody away, but I would caution folks that um, if you're looking at living history, this could be a rather extreme first-time event. Do you follow? Uh, I believe so. Uh, do you want to expound, expound on that? Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity. I mean, it's it's a marvelous event, but if you've never attended 
an immersion-style event, and this thing actually goes for, for two and a half days, um, this could be rather extreme because there's a lot of marching, a lot of training. Uh, there are, on occasion, simulated combat between the, the Celtic and the Roman sides. Uh, that gear gets heavy quickly, and the people that attend are not by any stretch in the of the imagination, primarily veterans, although surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, that community is, is heavily represented. But if you're you're not used to uh, 30 pounds of, of armor and hobnailed boots or sandal-type boots and a uh, an 18-pound shield and an 8-pound metal helmet on top of your grape, it can be a bit extreme for a, a first-time event. But you know, just to, to check it out, individuals can come as Roman civilians or they can come as uh, Celtic non-warrior classes. We characterize it as a, a PG-13 event. <laughs> well, Red, I want to thank you for your time. This has been very informative. Thank you. Rob, thank you very much for an opportunity to uh, to present a co-joined history of, of both the Marine Corps and the the Romans. I think one of the one of the major thoughts that I would encourage your listeners to come away with is that victory by either side is not a given. It's not automatic that the, the Marines are going to win, and certainly not automatic that the, the Romans are going to win. I think the victory would go to to that group who was strategically and tactically had the most on the ball. And given that you're looking at the Augustan period, uh, one of Augustus's primary generals, Agrippa, was a an absolutely phenomenal general and admiral. And were Agrippa to be one of those who would command um if the logistics were not properly monitored on the, the Marine Corps side, I can see a loss to the Marines. And then conversely, uh, I could see the tactics and the strategy and the modern weapons of the, the Marines winning the battles to the point where the, the war becomes a victory on the Roman side becomes questionable, but by no stretch of the imagination can you just arbitrarily say, well, the Marines would win or the, the Romans would win. It's a thought-provoking subject, and I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss it today. ten miles east of Wonderland. Roman spies have already established a screen around the camp, tightening the noose. Thousands of veterans are streaming into Rome as news of the invasion spreads. Nelson's second-in-command steps out of the lead Humvee, waving a white flag. He walks forward, his hands open. The Praetorians waver. Tales of Bassus's encounter have become rumor and legend already. The invaders cursed him with magic. The invaders broke a flag of truce. The invaders devoured the corpses. All it takes is one fool, one moment of rash terror. But the Praetorians are the best their empire has to offer. They are an elite, just as the Marines they face are. They are patriots and they are cool tacticians. Eye to eye, the Marines and Praetorians take each other's measure. Today, things make sense. I am sorry, says Major Terence Washington. He holds his hands open. On behalf of the United States and the U.S. Marine Corps, I apologize deeply for the misunderstanding. 
His gaze is level and honest. He has fought in Panama and Iraq, Afghanistan and Iraq again. He has dealt with men who place honor above life. His eyes say what his words cannot. Javelins are lowered, as are rifles. Across a hundred feet in two thousand years, two men walk forward and clasp hands. And Senator Murena hears of this that evening, watching the glow of the Praetorian's camp torches from his veranda, and seethes. The Praetorian corpses are disinterred and returned with full military honors. The first 21-gun salute in the history of the world is fired. Augustus Caesar stands at attention. It takes all of Colonel Nelson's training and experience to... This concludes episode 13, season 3 of Ancient Rome Refocused. Hope you liked the show. The Next time, when we come back, we will have an interview with Vicky Alvera Schechter, who wrote the book Cleopatra's Moon, about the daughter of Cleopatra, Selena. Hope to see you there.